0: Welcome to the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast, episode number 85. And today we are talking with Jeff Hahn, and we are talking about all things PR and food businesses. So folks, grab a pen and paper as per usual, because you really need this one. Welcome to the Smallholder Food Development Institute podcast, where we serve up truth so that you can build the profitable, sustainable food business you've always dreamed of. Now here's your host, Dr. Michelle Fannin-Steele. Well, welcome everybody. I'm so excited that you have joined us for this week's podcast. I am absolutely delighted to have Jeff Hahn here. And Jeff, I'm just gonna let you introduce yourself. Tell us who you are and what you do.
1: Well, thank you, Michelle. Great to be a guest here. And I appreciate being a guest given my subject matter expertise in this crisis time that we find ourselves and we hope, of course, as we think about your listeners, that everyone is well and healthy. But I grew up in a corporate communications world for motor, Motorola Semiconductor uh, when I started my professional career. And I've always been in the communication space. One way or another, I did employee communications, financial communications, I was uh, did executive communications for a while, and then marketing, a little advertising, employee communications. I've been a comms guy all of my careers. I left Motorola after 15 years. And then for the last 15, I've been an agency guy. I've uh, run an agency here in Austin with um, several different brands associated with it, but we do a lot of promotional communications work for food brands, and also a lot of uh, protection communication, crisis com for food brands. That promote, protect, one-two punch is what apron food PR is all about. And um, all of that is preceded by the fact that I grew up on a farm. So it's just wonderful to be in a food conversation all these years, um, even through and finding ways to participate in the food industry. Through this particular and unique angle.
0: Well, that's great. It's I think you know a lot of people who come to uh, the the food world, especially from communications, don't really have a farming and food production background, <laughs> and they, some of them like to eat, which is probably a good enough start. So, so. As you started working with, you know, transitioning out of Motorola and um, and going out on your own, what do you wish you had known when you started?
1: I think the most important lesson that I appreciate today is the challenge, it's attention actually, of how important it is to establish a specific expertise. Now here, 30 years into my career, I can say my specific expertise Area is crisis communication in my early years, I just thought to myself, Hey, learn every communications function that you can to be a great generalist, which is good I wouldn't change that for the world. I do wish, however, I would have known back then, yes, be a generalist, but start um, start to work on your specialist area as well and really go deep in that space. Because it's here now at the 30 year mark that your expertise is what gets sought after and bought versus, hey, I'm a good comms person. I can do just about everything. All of that's true, but it's not as valued as having a real crystal clear expertise that people can say, I need A and you are it.
0: That's fascinating. You know, it's 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 interesting as we look at food production businesses who are trying to scramble right now um, in response to the coronavirus and 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 so many of our third spaces closing. You know, where we where we make food and serve food and, and that and that sort of thing. And and people are really trying to translate what they do into sellable expertise that they can use to keep their business afloat.
1: <laughs> it's true, and this is where creativity is really paying off inside of the uh, COVID-19 season that we're in, who knows, who knows how long it'll last, right? But you're finding some really innovative restaurateurs, for example, who are looking at their past sales and understanding perhaps putting into clear focus for the first time. Hey, really, of the 25 menu items that we have, only uh, people mostly buy three of them. So let's just cook those three and really be good at it and add that in, make sure that people know as part of their weekly new normals that they can come and get that signature dish. And so they become experts in that. Those few dishes that one commodity, that one thing. And people will move in their minds away from, I think I'll just go get some food into no, I'm going to go get that food. So expertise can pay off in unusual ways, even in the midst of this situation.
0: That's so interesting. I absolutely love that. Now I think as, as part of the response around coronavirus and, and things happening in a business, one of the things that you talked about is uh, the importance of forming a rapid response team. Can you talk a little bit more about what that is and, and why it's important and maybe who should be on it?
1: Absolutely. I've written a book called Breaking Bad News, 12 essential <laughs> tools for crisis communications. And in Breaking Bad News, I have a five step model for rapid response. What's kind of weird right now is that coronavirus is a slow breaking situation. Very different from typical, you know, Listeria outbreaks. Those are fast breakers. So my model is geared to fast breaking situations, but no matter the speed or pace, the five elements are true. And the first element is the activation of a rapid response team. You gotta get your team on the field. Of the five steps, and I'll be happy to tick them off for you as we go, but of those five steps, this is the one that brands and organizations mess up the most. You wouldn't believe how many times I've showed up in a war room and nobody knows where to go, the doors are locked, who's got the key, we don't know what phone number to call in on, What is the um, document we're looking at? I don't have that version. It's like an episode of Keystone Cops. The rapid response team has no uh, training. They don't know the roles that they're supposed to play. And there are seven distinct roles that I outline in my book. And they don't know how to uh, rapidly prosecute through very difficult decisions without a lot of information. So I think about this rapid response team as these seven key people filling very specific roles around a table, around a conference call, with the ability to execute decision-making in a sequence that allows them to control a fast-breaking news narrative. And if those players know their positions on the field, so to speak, uh, they can run the play. But if you don't know what your role is when you get on the field, it's a mess. So that's really the one of the opening chapters of Breaking Bad News is very specifically talking about the importance of getting the first step right.
0: True, I mean, we often talk about how food safety is a team sport, you know, I mean, step one of your, any food safety plan is form your team. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, precisely. And that's so important. It's such good advice that people just sort of like, oh yeah, sure, sure.
0: Right. Uh, it's like whichever warm body happens to, you know, like who can we think of like in the moment? Uh, and that's not how you got to do it.
1: Uh. Oh, precisely. And, and, you know, you've seen it before. Um, when the spaghetti hits the fan, the, the next warm body is just not going to do. You know, those people that are on that team, they have to have very, um, just like a football team you got to have an assigned role. Otherwise, you're running all over the place. So on my rapid response team design, I always think about chief decision maker. Hmm. That's the first most important. And it's not CEO. It's CDM. I don't <laughs> care what title you hold in a particular company. Chief decision maker is the role that you're playing. The second most important role is also um, one that's overlooked on a regular basis. It's really the team coordinator. And it may sound like an administrative function, but it's the the key role to make or break the assembly of a rapid response team and the um, recording of activity, including the, the drafting of written materials throughout the activation. So on one end of the table, I got a chief decision maker. On the other end, in my ideal war room, I've got a really experienced team coordinator. On the sides, you have get uh, a number of other players. There might be a subject matter expert, you know, communications person. Your attorney, a legal professional, is super helpful. A person like you, the subject matter expert, food safety expert, absolutely essential in that room. And then you might have a deputy chief decision maker as well. And the deputy chief decision maker is important because if your mother ever told you that nothing good ever happened after midnight, she is right. Um, No matter what, bad news is gonna break at the worst possible time when chief decision maker is on an airplane, on a desert island someplace it's 2 a.m. so your deputy has to then be immediately appointed to the to that chair for that day and you need that redundancy in order to make sure you have the ability to make decisions
0: that makes so much that makes so much sense and i and i do really see that you know i mean they i had uh, i had a client who had a sewer line break and he was i think in alaska might have been salmon fishing. <laughs> it's like, what do we do now? <laughs> and I had to go out there, you know, and it's, um, and, you know, honestly it's one of the services I offer my people is, is I am the deputy decision maker. Like you can't be there. I will drop everything and I will, I will go out there. Um, but I think having that all laid out beforehand is incredibly important. So yeah, then I tell hope, us.
1: I hope people understand that about you and your practice because <laughs> Their, their ability to actually on-demand hire a deputy chief decision maker, I don't know if you're in the food business, how you do without someone like you. It's really mysterious to me, but uh, I'm sure you shake your head a lot at that same question.
0: I do. Uh, I do. And people do do it without me and they do it. Um, it takes a lot longer and it costs way more money. Um, not just in terms of like the recall itself and the time, money and effort associated with the recall or, or you know, any adverse event that's going on, um, but especially in brand reputation, you know, the longer you got all that stuff out there and the less well you are doing in your social media and things like that, um, it, it, the longer your brand takes a hit and the longer it takes to recover.
1: Yeah, that's really part of the point of uh, Breaking Bad News. I put um, the entire model, my five-point model, inside what I refer to as the TikTok box. And in the TikTok box, I'm basically telling readers, you have 120 minutes to get this fixed Mm -hmm. and to establish narrative control. If you can't accomplish these five steps in 120 minutes, you're going to lose control of your situation.
0: Wow, that's pretty crazy. So then, if we look at the most important things that these small producers can can do when bad news about their business breaks, like it's I've had I've had clients in recall, I've had clients with you know water main breaks. I've had clients with um, significant employee theft, um, mm-hmm. food fraud, embezzlement. you know, I was just talking with somebody. I think I've had one client a year. I've been in, And I've been in business uh, eight years, one client a year that's been embezzled to more the tune of more than a million dollars. Right? Mm-hmm.
1: Oh my gosh. That just makes your gut hurt to hear Done it.
0: That. Mm-hmm. Didn't, so what do they do? Uh, what can they do to recover? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I'll talk, walk you down through my other four steps and this will give uh, your listeners a pretty good picture. Activate your team, that's number one. Then your first responsibility is to Um, especially if you have media that's already communicating with you or on social media, you see that the problem has become public. Your Your second step is to issue a holding statement. And a holding statement is nothing more than a 100 words or fewer message to those you care about most saying, we understand there's a problem, we are working it. That gives you a little bit of a breathing room just because you have gone through the exercise of actually communicating externally to those that you need to. From there, the three M's of the model kick in. Message, messenger, and method. I'll walk down through each of those. You gotta get your message right. And typically the question is, are you to blame? If you are to blame, I detail in the book, the five major options that you have. The last option, by the way, is apology. And if I were to tell anybody or advise any clients of any particular thing to do, it's do not apologize as your first act. Worst (laughs) idea ever. In your messaging, you have to craft that pretty carefully but pretty quickly to focus on Uh, the question of blame and if you're gonna accept it or reject it. Now, if you reject it and there's uh, this situation going on, then your only option is to blame someone else, which is a good option, by the way, if that's what it should happen. Um, If you do need to accept blame, you've gotta work down through three particular options and those can include um, issuing statements Uh, about the situation in general, or even talking about corrective action. Here's what we're doing to fix it. Mm -hmm. Most important thing in messaging in the midst of a bad news break is to stay in the present and not speak too far into the future. That's your messaging category. Then your messenger um, has to spin up very quickly with message in hand and be ready to affix their name to either a written statement or an interview or a social media post. And that messenger needs to be ready to convey your message in a way that is authentic and in control. It's a really tough balance. If this, uh, if inside the TikTok box is the first time your, your messenger is actually getting put through a bad news break situation, then you have failed to train a good spokesperson because that's unfair to put someone in that soup that's so hot. But your messenger has to be ready to deliver that message. And uh, what I detail in the book is that, especially when talking to reporters, reporters only ask six, six types of questions, only six. And they ask them in a predictable sequence. So if you can get your message um, sorted across those question types, you'll be ready. And then finally, how am I gonna put the word out? What's the method I'm gonna use? That's my third M. You have all kinds of ways to do that. Uh, They start from written statements, that's high control, but low authenticity, all the way down to press conferences Press conferences are high authenticity, but low control. And in between, you've got a number of different methods that you can use in order to convey information to the people you care about most. But it's up to the chief decision maker and the team to assess what are your method options and say, hmm, yeah, the right balance for us at this time is uh, more control, less authenticity, therefore we're gonna pick this particular technique. And there's 12 to choose from, but that gives you a nice bookend to imagine what's in between.
0: Okay, so that's super interesting because oftentimes when we have like a recall event, um, there is messaging that goes out and we think about different kinds of messaging so we have the you know kind of the pr messaging about you know what the heck happened but then and and where where you know i more come in is the messaging back to the people who we have to go and get um product back from <laughs> and do yes. recall accounting and all of that sort of stuff so are you included and, and a lot of that is regulatorily required uh, you know um and then messaging to uh, the FDA and all of that sort of stuff. So are you considering that messaging? Because oftentimes I just work with the lawyer on that uh, mm-hmm. so that we can do that correctly. But how does that play in? Uh-huh. Yeah,
1: in the food business, it actually there's a fork in the road right at the message step. One fork goes to external stakeholders. They might be um, consumers, for example, Um but the other fork is yours. And that mm-hmm. is when you have to speak to regulators in regulatories. <laughs> is that a word?
0: I don't know. It totally should be. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, they speak Romulan or Klingon, one of the two. And if you don't know how to speak their language, you can't communicate effectively with FDA or USDA, whoever is regulating that particular food line. But that's where... The, you take the message and move it in one direction a another messenger will take it and move it into a external stakeholder direction.
0: Okay, I think that's a really important distinction because oftentimes like especially I think especially with the fda there's there's this like press release that they require you to do and it's terrible. <laughs> It's, it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. And, and, and I think that's where a lot of people start to, start to feel out of control. It's either there or when the FDA asks you to like fax information in, that also helps people feel super out of control.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. Now the requirement is to issue a press release the um, requirement is not to issue a bad press release. And so (laughs) that's where we just have to say, okay, FDA is giving us a template as an example. We don't have to follow it. We just have to fulfill the requirement.
0: Right, right, exactly, exactly. Okay, so that's super interesting. So what PR advice uh, can you offer a smallholder food business whether they're just starting out or they're already an established company?
1: Well, we sometimes think about PR as, uh, um, that's an arena for used car salesman type people. And I think what I would advise, especially one starting out that, if you imagine communications, one of your first responsibilities, especially as an entrepreneur in a small company is to imagine your audiences that are most important to you and actually write them down. These are the audiences most important to me. My customers, their consumers, my regulators, uh, my suppliers. And if you have contact lists for those, then you've at least created an ability to quickly pull together lists that uh, allow you to communicate through email at a minimum. Uh, And it sounds like just sort of a rudimentary exercise, but you'd be shocked at how many clients I run into that they have no idea how to get in touch with the people that they need to when they're working down through, for example, a recall.
0: Oh, I would believe that they don't know how to get in touch with people.
1: you've seen more than i have yeah it's just ridiculous
0: you're like come on work with me here work with me all right so then um what what advice then you know you're an entrepreneur you work with a lot of entrepreneurs what advice would you give somebody who wants to be an entrepreneur or is on an entrepreneurship journey
1: hmm? well i um i think in models i use all kinds of models to shape my decision-making. Like these tools we've been talking about in Breaking Bad News, it's just a book full of models that rapidly accelerate my decision-making. Now, it's taken me seven years to write the book and 30 years to accumulate. So I don't mean to minimize them, but if you are uh, starting out on your entrepreneurial journey, there are a few really tricked out models that can focus your mind and allow you to not lose track of where you are in your business. The one that I still use, I've used it for years, um, is called the McKinsey 7S. It's a fantastic business model diagram, and it forces you to walk through the seven major segments of any company, of any enterprise. McKinsey 7S, if if any of your listeners Google that phrase, Oh, you'll see a dozen different examples of that model. But it forces you to address, in the center of it, shared values. They're really critical. And then strategy, and then structure. And you move yourself all the way around the seven S's. It gives you a complete view of your company, your organization that you're trying to run. And it also helps you understand, like a scratch and sniff kind of Uh, model that you could get on the back of a cereal box way back when. Um, What stinks in in all of the things that you're doing from your systems to your style, to your skills, all of these are the part of the S's to your staff. Um, Scratch and sniff, scratch and sniff. And if one of those bubbles smells bad, then that's what you have to address. Having that as a very disciplined or deliberate way to look at your business, no matter how large or small that it is, it's one of the great tools that I've used to grow from, when I bought the company, we were 12 people. Now we're uh, 35. So um, it's stayed with me all this time and it's helped me stay focused on the things that matter most in times that matter the most.
0: That's so impressive, I love that. I'm definitely gonna go Google that. I had, you know, I thought I had, I thought I had it down on all those business models and things like that, but it, McKinsey, it's, it's gotta be out of McKinsey Consulting, right?
1: Uh, That's right, yeah. Huh,
0: okay, and I will totally look that just up. Just a
1: fantastic one and so easy to, I mean, you'll learn it in 60 seconds. Okay. But practicing with it is a lifelong journey.
0: Sure, sure. Well, you know, we always talk, we talk a lot about a lot of uh, infinite games around here. If you've uh, read Simon Sinek's new book. I
1: have it on my bookshelf back here. That's right.
0: (laughs) I mean, but your entrepreneurship journey is an infinite game.
1: (laughs) That's right. I think that's one of the other um, illusions that entrepreneurs ought to set aside. I run into so many agency owners that they have this idea in their head, hey, I'm gonna do this for X number of years and then, and then I'm gonna get bought. You know, the odds of actually getting acquired are 0.001% in a normal market. Um, you just, you cannot base your dream of cashing out with some sort of a unicorn and rainbow moment uh, based on those statistics. It's just not real. So you have to be quite deliberate of either my, for example, my exit plan is to die behind my desk. That's good, uh, that's good. At, at least I know where I'm gonna be. <laughs> and I have no illusions that I might get bought, have this amazing lottery moment. Um, but coming, uh, being at peace with that idea is really important. Otherwise, it's a super frustrating journey because there is no end. Unless you shut it down and walk away and go to work for somebody else, but if you're really an entrepreneur, if that's in your bones, well, you've gone feral. You you can't work for somebody else. That would that would defy the laws of physics. So, <laughs> um, I think entrepreneurs on that journey have to be really. Uh, they got to give themselves permission to know. This is a treadmill that never stops, so enjoy it as you go. Um, I had a great coach, one of my uh, best coaches I've ever had in business, this guy named Blair Enns. Blair runs Win Without Pitching.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And Blair did this exercise with us one time. He said, I'd like you to um, think just for really, uh, not more than 30 seconds, what are the three things that once you're all done with this business, three things that you would do, and of course, most people, oh, I'd, take, I'd travel, I would you know, finally get into shape, some of the standard stuff, a few more exotic responses. Then he changed the rules, he said, now, new rule, you can never quit, you can never sell, you can never retire. Well, what he's trying to help us understand is, look, those things that you wrote on your list, you've got to work those into your entrepreneurial journey. You gotta do those now along the way. Otherwise, the job eats you to death. And you wake up one morning not knowing what happened. And so I thought that was just terrific encouragement. It sure stopped me and made me think, what are those you know, three year, five year things that I wanna make sure I accomplish in my journey as milestones for what will someday lead to a moment where, when police officers put tape around my body on the floor behind my desk.
0: <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious. But that's really, no, I mean, I think that's really good. And we always, I was, when I'm talking with clients, you know, it's all about where, you know, what is your like, what's your exit plan? And they are thinking unicorns and daisies. And, and that's like, that's never it. That's never it. It is, it is just, even in the food business, you know, you want to talk about Justin's peanut butter or any of these big, you know, brands that get bought out, but that's, that's mostly not happening.
1: That's right. It does happen, which creates this false sense of, uh, oh, that's the path. Uh, but mm-hmm. I mean, for the vast majority of us, no.
0: That is not there
1: not happening. So create another enjoyable path. One of the great things I see here in Austin, for example, um, food entrepreneurs who've done pretty well for themselves have rallied together to create a program called SKU, S-K-U. And I don't think it's an acronym that stands for anything associated with the program, but SKU is, um, it's a food entrepreneur incubator. Mm-hmm. So they are all giving back or reinvesting time and expertise into these up-and-coming food entrepreneurs, and they're doing it as they're growing their own businesses too. So it's really a, that's a great way to imagine one of the milestones on your roadmap. Um, I'm going to, at this juncture, at about you know ten years, I'll have experiences to share um, with others. And by the way. What I have found, especially in managing 35 people with a lot of younger staff, when I'm, um, when I have reached certain years in my own profession, in my own professional journey, um, I can't relate to those who are younger anymore. Hmm. So I got to stop at about every five years and say, who around me can I help? Can I advise, maybe do some mentoring on? because I can relate to them five years ahead or five years behind. Um, when I'm 30 years ahead of them, they, they're looking at me like, what can you tell me, old man? Sure. And they're like right to do it, because uh, I don't understand their experiences anymore.
0: Right, right, no, that's super, that's super interesting. Lots, that's of, ways great. To, lots yeah. of ways
1: to program your journey, and those are just a few examples or ideas of what's worked for me and what I've enjoyed.
0: Well, I love that so much. So now, for our, our our listeners who may need you, hopefully not in a crisis, um, maybe maybe start before the crisis. <laughs> Let us know how we can how they can get in touch with you.
1: Well, easiest way is uh, through the book's website, BreakingBadNewsBook.com, and you'll see me there and my contact information's all there. And I think breaking. if everything goes right, um, the book should be on the shelves around May 15. So we're, we're maybe three weeks out.
0: Okay, all right. So we're recording this at uh, kind of the end of April. Um, are you in pre-sales? Are you in like Amazon pre-sales or anything?
1: Yep, you can pre-order on the website, and uh, we're setting up our Amazon connections here this week. So uh, people will be able to find those pretty quickly.
0: Excellent. Well, congratulations on, on publishing the book. That's really quite an accomplishment and thank you so much for coming on the podcast and very best of luck as you like go through your book push and all that good sort of stuff.
1: Well, thank you so much and be well. And I hope everyone stays safe and healthy as we go through this upside down time.
0: Absolutely. You as well. So long. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into our podcast. Be sure to join us in The Proofing Box, a private Facebook page for food producers filled with valuable information and technical tips. Grow your business by learning from people just like you, all under the guidance of a food safety expert.